Good morning, Christ Point. Hope you are well this morning. Uh, I have three, uh, three goals, three desires this morning. Uh, I want us to think about the reason for the sacrifice of Jesus. Why did Jesus come and live and die on a cross? I want us to think about the result of his sacrifice and then our response uh, to it. So the reason, the result, and the response. And I want to do that by uh, first sharing a story uh, from the book of Numbers. Uh, Once upon a time, uh, there was a group of people, God's people, who were journeying from a place uh, called Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea uh, to go to the land of Edom. Uh, Sadly, uh, the soul of God's people became discouraged along the way. And the people spoke up against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. If you're familiar with the story, you know that God delivered his people from slavery, but he did not deliver them from a mundane menu. He allowed the experience that they had, uh, the the newfound freedom from Pharaoh, uh, to to drive them, to deliver them, but they weren't free from the challenges of wilderness wanderings. Uh, So they did what we oftentimes do when life doesn't go our way. They became discouraged, and then uh, many uh, people began to complain. Have you ever been there before? They complained to God. Uh, They complained to God about the leader who had been given to to them. They complained about Moses. Uh, God heard their complaints, and he did not respond too kindly. Uh, Numbers chapter 21, verse 6 reads, So God sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Think about it for a moment. You've been delivered from sure death. You've been released from the unrighteous rule of a dictator, of an ungodly leader. Essentially, the Navy SEALs broke down the enemy's doors in the middle of the night, uh, defeated the bad guys, uh, lifted you up, threw you over their shoulder, carried you outside and onto a helicopter where you would fly to your safety. And you respond by simply looking at them and saying, excuse me, I was sleeping. Why did you wake me up in the middle of the night? This is what God's people essentially said to God. God delivered a people from slavery in Egypt, then provided for their physical needs supernaturally by providing manna from heaven. But as they journeyed through Canaan, The people became impatient and began to speak against God and Moses, and they expressed their unhappiness. Uh, God responded to the rebellion of the people by sending a plague. Uh, This time, the plague was not sent uh, to the Egyptians. The plague was sent to God's people, the Israelites. Uh, God sent poisonous snakes whose venom is described as being like fire. The snakes bit the people, and many of them died. Uh, Needless to say, and this is the understatement of the century, um, this is horrible. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, think about it. I'm not a snake guy. (laughs) Not a snake guy. Uh, I hate snakes. When we moved to Charlotte the very first morning, we opened up our garage door, and there was 
uh, a copperhead in our driveway. Uh, he was not invited. No one asked him to come over. I had to grab a shovel from the garage, and I went outside and slowly approached the snake uh, to end its life like any sane human being would. And I swung, and I missed the snake. Uh, the snake was none too happy. I think my neighbors were wondering who in the world did, did move next door to us. And so I turned the shovel flat, and I beat the snake to death. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of proud of myself uh, when, when I did it, to be honest with you. It was uh, a little bit of a scary situation. I, I hear stories of people who love snakes. I grew up watching The Crocodile Hunter. I saw when he would come face to face with a snake and say in that cool accent of his, oh, she's a beaut. No, she's not. No, she's a snake, and she can kill you. Right? Nobody, like when I was a kid, I would have bad dreams. I'd wake up in the morning and my mom would be like, what did you dream about? I'm like, I, I dreamed that a snake bit me. That was my, was my prevailing bad dream I had. I never woke up in the morning and said, oh, she was a beaut. <laughs> now, nobody does that. Snakes are dangerous. Snakes are deadly. Uh, these snakes uh, were deadly. When we read the story, we're tempted to think, well, that was maybe a bit extreme. I mean, maybe. I mean, I, you know, you can kind of read the story and you think to yourself, God's people are, are wandering. Yes, it was kind of their fault that they ended up there, but you know, I'm sure life on the road wasn't easy. They weren't staying at the Westin. They didn't have fluffy towels or heavenly beds. They didn't love the food that they were eating. I'm sure they experienced challenges along the way. And so we can read the story and think, well, man, I, I could see how they could complain. I could see how they could get discouraged. I could see how they could have questions about you know, what God was doing. And yet, I'm struck when I read this story, I'm struck uh, to consider God's holiness and the seriousness of sin. The sin of the people was so serious that God's, uh, God sent poisonous snakes into uh, the camp. If the story ended there, God would uh, not be at fault he would be well within uh, his right to kind of put a punctuation mark on that story and move on, but he doesn't. Mercifully, God uh, prescribes uh, a remedy for the people. Numbers chapter 21, verse uh, 7 through 9 read, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, uh, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. I pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who was bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Some of the people looked to the bronze serpent and experienced life. Others turned away and would experience death. It's interesting, even as they approach death's door, uh, some would not trust in God's prescribed remedy, uh, even though it had a 100% cure rate. Now, the question is, why in the world uh, would we go to the book of Numbers uh, when we are talking about, arguably, uh, the most famous passage in all of the scriptures. Numbers is where Bible reading plans go to die. So why do we go to Numbers? Well, we go to Numbers uh, because one day a religious leader uh, comes to Jesus late at night. 
Pharisee. His name was Nicodemus. He was a pretty big deal. And he strikes up a conversation with Jesus, and he refers to him as teacher or rabbi, and he acknowledges that Jesus does a mighty works. No one could do the works that he did unless he was sent from God. And Jesus, in a very Jesus-like way, um, does what only Jesus could do. He pulls no punches and gets right at the point and says to Nicodemus, the religious leader, you must uh, be born Again, And so Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus about what does it look like to experience new life? What is it? Where does it come from? What is the new birth? And then Jesus says this to Nicodemus, verse 14 of John chapter 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The phrase lifted up in Scripture can refer to being exalted when someone is lifted up high and exalted, or there are times when Scripture talks about someone or something being lifted up as just literally being lifted up. And and Jesus is reminding Nicodemus that in the Old Testament, a serpent, a bronze serpent, was lifted up for people to look to, uh, to be saved, to be rescued, to experience life. Jesus is telling Nicodemus uh, that the Son of Man uh, will be lifted up. Uh, He is reminding Nicodemus, he is reminding us that humanity suffers uh, from a deadly disease called sin sickness. Uh, But praise God, uh, life is available, and one must trust in Jesus to experience it. Just like those who were snake-bitten needed to look to the bronze serpent, uh, we must look to Christ to find life. God has uh, provided a way. It's not a bronze snake on a pole, uh, but it is God's Son who was placed on a tree. Uh, This morning, I said I want us to consider the reason for Christ's sacrifice, the result of Christ's sacrifice, and then our response uh, to his sacrifice. I want us to think together about the reason uh, that Jesus uh, came to die. What was the reason that Christ suffered on the tree? Why? Why did God send his son? Why would he do that? I mean, when you think about it, the story makes no earthly sense. It just, it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't make sense. I read a commentator uh, a couple weeks ago who, who said this. This is kind of how he couched the story. He said, suppose there is actually a God in heaven, and suppose this God created the world and everything in it. Suppose that in the process of making a myriad of species of birds, fish, and animals, he formed human beings in his image and gave them the most exalted position in all creation. Suppose, just suppose, he said, you will be holy even as I am holy. And he gave them one command to obey. But 15 minutes later, after he made them, these human beings revolted against him by doing the very thing he commanded them not to do. Suppose God then said, I'm going to provide a way of escape from my judgment. And then he called Abraham out of paganism, brought him to himself and said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Suppose that he blessed all the descendants of Abraham, expanded them into a whole nation, and said, through this nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. But this nation repeatedly turned against him. Suppose God sent prophets to these people to tell them to come back to him, just as an unfaithful spouse returns to his or her partner. But the people killed the prophets. 
Suppose God finally said, even though you are a rebellious people, that I'm going to send my eternal only begotten son to you, knowing that the people would rise up against his son and kill him. Why would God do that? Why would he do that? Uh, John chapter 3 verse 16 is why. Uh, For God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God sent Jesus to die for us because God loved us. God loves us. This is very good news. We've done nothing to earn his love or deserve his love, but God loves us. This is amazing. When you think about it, we're not all that lovable. I mean, God knows everything about us, like everything. There are are no secrets. The things that we've done that nobody else knows about, God knows about. The things that we've said that we hope are never repeated, God knows about those things. The very things that, that we think about or have thought about that stay seemingly safe in our memory bank. Um, All of those, um, God knows, they are laid bare before an all-knowing God. God knows everything about us, and God loves us. In Christ, we are fully known, and we are fully loved. This, This is not like self-help talk. This isn't daily affirmations by Tony Robbins. This is gospel truth. God knows us. He knows you better than you know you. Uh, And in Christ, he loves you. At your very best, like at your very best, uh, when you're killing it. When you have one of those days where you think to yourself, I think I nailed it today. Like you did your devotions. Your prayer life was fairly strong. (laughs) You were kind. You got cut off driving to work in the morning and you just simply said, God bless you. I want what's best for you. Like you, like you, you at your best, God knows and loves. And you at your worst, when you're apathetic, Uh, when you're indifferent, when you're distant, uh, when you seemingly don't care very much about the things of God or the people of God. God God sees you and knows you on those days, and God loves you. Uh, The death of Jesus, the horrible crucifixion of his son, or of Jesus the Son, is a direct result of the love that God has for you and for me. And his death was displayed, or his love was displayed in the death of Jesus. The third word in John 3.16, a little two-letter word, so, uh, which can be understood in two different ways. It could mean that God really, really loves us. He so loves us. Like when your kids were little. And you, you told them that they were so big. 
You'd take their little hands in your hands, and you would say to your son or daughter, Cademan or Noah or Amelia, like, who's big? Like, you are so big. And you'd stretch out their arms to show them how big they really are. There are times when so uh, talks about uh, the, the manner or, or the depth of God's love, like God so loves you. But it's referring to something else here. Uh, here, it is a demonstration of God's love. Some translations uh, quote John three sixteen and say, in this way or in this manner, in this way, God has loved us. In this, in this way, God has loved us. He's, he's loved us so much that he gave Jesus a demonstration of his love. It doesn't diminish the intensity of God's love for us, but it shows us that God's love was demonstrated in a real and a tangible way. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave. Uh, the proof of God's love is seen in the person and the work of Jesus. There is a connection between God's declaration of love and his demonstration of love. God doesn't only say, I love you. He does, and that would be enough because God doesn't lie. He's a truth teller. But instead, God tells us that he loves us and he shows us. We can understand this, right, on a daily basis. We experience like some level of this, not, not this fully, but we, we experience this on some level, this idea that, um, that, that love is connected in some way with a demonstration, not just a declaration. It would be like if you were to go to your boss and say, um, boss, I just want you to know that I love this job. I love it. I love everything about it. If your boss replied to you and said, well, thank you, um, but you haven't been to work in six weeks. I haven't seen you. Where have you been? Your, your boss might be implying that there is a disconnect uh, between your declaration of your love uh, for your job and your demonstration of your love for your job. Uh, in relationships, if you say to your spouse, I love you, but you are standoffish, you are unaffectionate, and you are consistently selfish, he or she might get to the point when you say, I love you, where he or she would reply to you ever so kindly, save your words. I don't want you just to say it. I want you to demonstrate it. God in Christ demonstrated his love for us. How did he do that? He gave uh, his son. When you are in doubt of God's deep love for you, remember that at your very worst, God gave to you his very best. He gave his one and only son. He gave his most valuable to those who are least deserving. Um, this kind of love is not natural. It's not when you think about it. I mean, we, we, we talk about loving in this way, but seldom do we love in this way. Oftentimes, our love is conditional. It is a meet-you-halfway kind of love. You show me love, and I'll show you love. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. I mean, think about the times when we confess our love to one another. In relationships, oftentimes we confess our love to one another when someone else is doing something to us that 
that we like or that we even love. They are acknowledging us. They are, they are performing to our liking. They are doing the things that we want them to do or saying the things that we want them um, to say. Oftentimes, that is how we love. I've never heard a wife, for instance, say the other day I was picking up my husband's socks again. And I noticed that he left the mail on the counter again. And so I called him, but he didn't hear me because he was watching the game again. And I asked him, have you finished the project in the kids' room? And he replied, I told you three months ago that I would get to it. You don't need to nag me about it. Only to have his wife look him square in the eyes and say, sweetie, I love you so much. Nobody, nobody does that. More often than not, our love feels conditional, but not God's love. Um, God sees us at our worst and gives us his best. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The reason for Christ's sacrifice is God's deep love for you. The result, uh, the result of Christ's sacrifice is life, is life uh, for some. The result of Christ's sacrifice is life for some. This deep love of God is not experienced by all people in the same way. It says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To not believe in Jesus is uh, to perish. To believe in Jesus is to have eternal life. When you read the word believe, uh, think, trust. It's, it's not just intellectual uh, belief. Of course, it is thinking with our minds. It's not just, though, saying, I believe that Jesus existed, or I believe that Jesus was a man, or I believe that Jesus was a teacher, or I believe that Jesus was a moral person. Jesus was so much more than those things. Um, Jesus was and is God's Son. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. Uh, Jesus is the one we look to for salvation in life. He is the one that we trust in. He is the one whom we follow. This is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about a belief or trust. This is the belief that leads to life, but there is another belief that leads to death. There is a belief that Scripture talks about that does not save. James chapter 2, verse 19, um, you believe that God is one, which is a theologically accurate statement. Um, God is one. We're monotheistic. Um, James writes, good for you, even the demons believe that and shudder. Whoever believes or trusts in Jesus has life, and whoever doesn't believe in Jesus experiences death. Um, that is the plain reading of the text. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I don't know 
Just generally speaking, in life, uh, if we do a lot of favors uh, by sticking people into neat, clean categories and saying things like, hey, everyone's in one of two categories. Admittedly, when I hear that, I, like, there's usually a red flag that goes up, and I'm like, I don't know if it's that simple. I don't know if we can put everyone into two categories. I mean, people are complex. There are layers uh, to, to, to people. There's, there's nuance. I, we need to be careful when you put people into two categories. All people are in one of two categories. There are some who are not condemned and experience life, and there are others who are condemned and experience death. There are some who are not condemned. Who are those who are not condemned? Well, verse 18 tells us, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Think about the weight of that. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. To condemn means to judge a person to be guilty and liable to punishment. All should be condemned. All are guilty, for all have sinned. There's no exception to that except for Jesus. Uh, recently, I was spending some quality time on my phone, um, time that I'll never have back. And I came across a video of a nice lady, I assume she was a nice lady, who had come before a judge. She was accused of running a red light, not exactly the crime of the century, but, you know, there she was in front of the judge. Uh, the very nice lady came to the judge, and the judge asked her if she ran the red light, and she said, I don't believe that I did. Well, because Big Brother is always watching, they had video footage of the so-called crime, and so they played the tape before the hardened criminal, allegedly. The judge said to her, well, let's, let's look at the tape. And she said, uh, okay. Sure enough, they showed the tape, and the tape showed that this nice lady was indeed a hardened criminal. Uh, she ran uh, the red light, and it wasn't even that close. And the judge looked at her and said, Ma'am, what say you? And she said, kind of sheepishly, with her head low, It's right there. It's on the tape. I thought about those words. It's right there. It's on the tape. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's right there. It's on the tape. But not all are condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. No longer guilty of sin. Sin has been removed. And nothing for the Christian can be held against us. When we place our faith in Jesus alone to save us, our sin and our guilt are washed away. And we are declared innocent, declared righteous in Christ. The righteous demands of the law are fulfilled in Jesus. 
and we are free from the law of sin and death. The curse of sin no longer remains on us. We're not condemned, and we cannot be condemned. There have been times in life when I've heard people say things, well, like, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. Really? I mean, think about that for a second. Like, the all-knowing, all-wise, gracious and good, merciful, loving, just and righteous God of the universe has, has declared that, that you are not condemned, you are not guilty. But we respond to that great truth by essentially saying, but I have standards. God may forgive me, but I just can't forgive myself. That is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches, according to the Apostle Paul, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John 3, 18, the phrase is not condemned is in the present tense, which means our condemnation has already been removed. It's not just something that we look forward to at death and wait for the judge to kind of tell us what uh, he has seen fit or what he determines. This is for us to enjoy here and now. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When sin confronts you like footage before the judge, it's easy for the Christian to feel the weight of sin and guilt and condemn himself or herself. When we do so, we forget the power of the cross We've already been freed from sin's guilt. Sin is no longer our master. We shouldn't drown in the guilt of our sin. That doesn't mean that we don't experience guilt when we sin. Hello? Have you ever done or thought or said something that you know is contrary to God's law and the spirit of the living God has convicted you and you've thought, that is evidence that you are God's son or daughter. I'm not saying we don't experience that. I I am saying that that guilt no longer has uh, the last word because whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. There's a second half to that verse that says anyone who does not believe is already condemned. So for those who do not trust in Jesus, someday you will stand before holy God and you will experience, according to Scripture, judgment, terrifying judgment. And the tape uh, will show what is true, and there will no longer be any hiding. Um, There are just consequences for turning from a holy and righteous God. Verse 19 says, and this is judgment, that light has come into the world and the people love the darkness uh, rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out uh, by God. 
Recently, I came across this picture of a fan holding a sign that read John 3.16. If you've been to a sporting event, if you've tuned in to watch a sporting event, you likely have seen a sign that read John 3.16. I'll be honest with you. I've seen those signs. I've never seen this sign. And I was a little struck when I saw this sign. I don't know the story behind the sign, uh, but I'm just guessing that the fan with the sign ran onto the field. Church family, I love you. I want what's best for you. I'm so glad that you're a part of Christ Point. If you ever go to a ball game with a Bible verse, don't break the law. Like, don't, don't run onto the field, right? Don't do what, what this cat did. And yet, when I saw the picture, I kind of had a laugh to myself because here is this man holding words of life and there's a security guard moments away from tasing him. He has words of life. But the man is trying to take him out. And I saw that picture and I thought, you know, Jesus came uh, as the light and life of the world. He came with words of life. And mankind loved the darkness rather than the light. Jesus, the true light, uh, has come. He has pierced the darkness. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek and save people um, just like you and just like me. So what is our response? How do we respond to this good news? This conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus uh, that night was a game changer. Uh, Jesus taught the religious and moral man that good works won't get you right with God. You can't earn God's favor. It doesn't matter how good you've seemingly been. Religion or morality will not and cannot save you. And, and it doesn't matter how bad you've been. Um, there is nothing that you could ever do to disqualify yourself uh, from the grace and the mercy of God. Uh, no one has ever been too rebellious that they can't run to God and experience his forgiveness. But there is one way to God. You must be born again. In other words, uh, you must look to Jesus and trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus and take him at his word. And his word tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. May you believe in Jesus and experience the life that is yours. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much uh, for the work of Jesus. Uh, Lord, thank you that he came uh, to offer life. Lord, thank you that because of his finished work on the cross uh, and the fact that Jesus defeated the grave, that he was... Uh, that he came back to life, he rose because of his finished work. We uh, have the opportunity to experience life in him. 
God, thank you so much for the demonstration of uh, your deep love for us. We are humbled and we are grateful. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.